Hi, friends, and welcome back to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. This is your host, Joel Dover, and welcome to Season 3. Hey, we study Bible prophecy here from a dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennial point of view, and we're always rapture ready. Grab your copy of God's Word and let's jump in together to see what the Lord has for us here on the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. This is Joel Dover. So great to have you back on the program this week. We're going to be looking today at Revelation chapter 5, so I'd like to encourage you and uh, invite you even to grab your copy of God's Word as we begin to work verse by verse, passage by passage through Revelation chapter 5. That's the way that we're taking this entire book, friends, just as we always do, verse by verse, passage by passage, precept upon precept, to unpack, to dig out here, to use uh, uh, good exegetical, uh, you know, exegesis, expository teaching here on what the Bible says, and to dig out its timeless truths. I want to just begin by reminding you of a critical truth in the book of Revelation, and this truth helps us to understand the structure of the entire book. So, if you'll just very quickly flip back with me to Revelation 1.19, you'll recall that in chapter 1, John began receiving this revelation while he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day on the island of Patmos. And in verse 19, he is instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ to write these things down. The way that the Lord says it is really interesting. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus says, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so, of course, when John receives this instruction, he's already had the vision of the Lord. So from John's vantage point, um, of course, writing the things which uh, you have seen, that's the content of chapter 1. The things which are, are the letters to the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. The things which will take place after these things, metatauta, very important Greek phrase, metatauta, that's future-oriented, that corresponds to the beginning of chapter 4, where if you look at this in the Greek, and you can see it here in the English as well, chapter 4 begins with the phrase, after these things. So again, that structure in verse 19 of chapter 1 really helps us to understand the threefold division of the book of Revelation. We're now in chapter 5. This means that we're getting into and you know are solidly into the future-oriented stuff, the things that will take place after these things, after these churches, future-oriented things. And of course, we believe that the contents of chapter 4 all the way through the book of Revelation really fit within the 70th week of Daniel. And so as we started last time, we saw that John was invited to, uh, in this vision, to come through a door which he saw in heaven. And as he steps through that, in obedience to the voice that was calling him, he has this beautiful, wonderful uh, throne room vision of the Lord. God is on his throne, and the Bible describes the Lord as, um, you know, just radiating this light, jasper and sardius stone in appearance, a rainbow around the throne, emerald in color, just beautiful, radiant light. And then, of course, John saw 24 thrones seated around that uh, throne of the Lord, the, the throne of God there. And we talked last time speculating who we think those 24 elders might be, but what's interesting is that they are worshipers. And as we get into chapter 5 today, we're going to continue to see this theme of worship around the throne uh, in John's vision. So uh, what will we do in heaven? Well, part of what we'll do in heaven is to worship the Lord for all of eternity and to declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come, which is the song that is sung in chapter 4 by the four living creatures that John saw in his vision, whereby the 24 elders bow and they cast their crowns before the Lord. Just a beautiful picture of worship in heaven. Heaven's going to be a worshipful place. I think I shared with you last time that if you don't enjoy or don't value worship here on earth, 
man, you're probably not going to like heaven very much. Learn to appreciate, Christian. Learn to appreciate the worship of the Lord here in your local body of Christ, your local fellowship, and with other believers, even in your personal life, because it's such a huge part of what we'll do in the kingdom of heaven. Well, as we take up chapter 5, we're jumping into a uh, a revelation here, of course, already in progress. After seeing these uh, things of worship, hearing these songs of worship now in heaven, chapter 5 tells us that the Lamb of God is introduced. The Bible says in verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, this is um, uh, a seven-sealed scroll, and obviously the one who is seated upon the uh, the throne is God the Father, God Almighty, and this scroll is written on both sides, front and back, and then rolled up with seven different seals. Verse 2 says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. And here's a question the angel's asking, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loosen its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And so here we have a scroll that's rolled up with seven seals. And in my imagination, my sanctified imagination, the way that I see this working is if you imagine a long strip of paper or parchment and you roll it, uh, you know, three, four rolls, put a seal in it, continue to roll it, put a seal in it, continue to roll it, put a seal in it, so that the seals are actually contained within the rolling of the scroll. And then, of course, it is um, uh, when you reach the end, it is sealed with a final seal. That way, as it is being unrolled and unsealed, there's a breaking of a seal as the scroll is being unrolled. Uh, in this case, seven different seals being broken and revealing uh, you know, the contents of this particular scroll. Well, the question is asked here, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll? And the Bible says that no one was worthy to open it or to even look at it. Think about that. No one was worthy to look at it, to see its contents, to uh, to read it, to see what it was all about. And the Bible is clear. No one in heaven, that is, no one who is already in the kingdom at this time. That would refer, of course, to departed saints of history. Uh, think about some of the great biblical characters who we believe to be there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Moses, David, all these men are in heaven. And of course, many women of faith as well. None of them worthy. None of them worthy now to break the seals of the scroll to read its contents. Not even the angels of heaven, created beings, not even the angels were found worthy. The Bible says also no one on the earth was found worthy. No no person who was among the living, that is, human beings still alive on the earth at this point, no one is worthy to even be called up, to be caught up. Remember, like Enoch was taken, did not die, was taken. Um, Elijah, taken in the whirlwind. No one was no one was found or deemed worthy on the earth to come and to break open the scroll. And then, of course, the scripture here, no one under the earth, that is, no human who had died uh, and who um, had lived, no matter how they had lived, no one was worthy. So, look, no one means no one in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. It's just an extreme way of saying that not a single creature in all of creation was worthy to open this particular scroll. Well, verse 4, John's reaction to this is grief. The Bible says, So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. And so we don't know why John is so visibly moved by this in this particular vision, but he is. He's he's moved to tears over it. He's weeping because no one was found worthy. Whatever it is on this scroll, well, it certainly must be of grand importance. And John perceived that in verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, 
Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So friends, John now has a heavenly vision of Jesus, the Lamb of God, crucified, buried, and resurrected. He's already seen Jesus in chapter 1 in his glorified state. Now he sees Christ, the Lamb of God there, as the only one who is worthy. John, he's instructed, don't weep, don't be sad over this. The elder speaks to him, don't, 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 don't weep, John. Behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, all messianic titles. He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. John looks, he sees, and there, of course, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood before them a lamb as though it had been slain. Again, a messianic title, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God being sent out into all the earth. Now, let's look at a couple of key words here. Uh, the word behold, of course, it means to look and see. If you look at this in the Greek language, the original language of Revelation, it's in the imperative mood. And so the elder is literally instructing John to turn your head and look. And so there it is. The Lamb of God is coming in. John, look. The Lamb of God is coming. Behold the Lamb of God. Let's look at these names for Messiah that are here, these messianic titles. Well, we see Messiah here referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This is a reference from Genesis 49, verse 8 to 10. Again, friends, one principle that we've discussed many times in this podcast is that we ought to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture in as much as it's possible. This passage, Genesis 49, 8-10, says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? And then verse 10 makes it clear that this is messianic. This lion is messianic. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. This, of course, is a messianic passage in Genesis 49. Shiloh refers, of course, to Mashiach Nagid, Messiah, our king. Now, if we look at Luke 1, 31-33, there is a confirmation of this. The Bible says, And behold... You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, 32. And he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Listen, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so, friends, it's clear that Genesis 49 is messianic because it is confirmed in the New Testament, the gospel of Luke. That's one way we know. When you look at an Old Testament passage, how do we know if it's prophetic or messianic? Well, if its fulfillment or confirmation is in the New Testament, it's a no-brainer. It's a drop kick, okay? Look at Matthew chapter 1. Make a note of that in your Bible. You're going to see the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Judah. That's interesting. And then the image of the lion is, of course, that of supreme rulership, the greatest authority. And so some people make the mistake of, of, of thinking, well, this just refers to David. No, no, it doesn't. It, it goes through the line of David, but Shiloh is the everlasting king. Uh, the scripture is very clear. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Well, if it's not for Jesus, 
then that prophecy has been broken in our day and has for thousands of years. But because of Jesus and the fulfillment of this prophecy, Shiloh, Jesus, Messiah, uh, that prophecy stands and stands eternally. Let's look at a few more of these terms. Again, Jesus in Revelation 5 is being referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, uh, the root of David and the lamb that has been slain. So uh, do we see these words referring to Messiah elsewhere in Scripture? Well, of course we do. If you know your Bible, then you know these are Messianic passages. The root of David, for example. Make a note in your study, your Bible perhaps, of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 16, where the Lord speaks of um, uh, this one who comes, the rod of the stem of Jesse, the branch that grows out of his roots, the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him, and gives this wonderful description of peace and uh, the kingdom age where um, the Messiah, of course, is reigning and ruling. And in this passage, he is called specifically the root of David. So I want you to go back and read that passage, clearly a messianic text. And then this idea of the lamb as though it had been slain, I want you to make a note of Isaiah 53, verse 2 to 12, because the Bible uh, refers to Messiah as this in this particular way. And Isaiah 53, along with Psalm 22, detailed the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, long before crucifixion even existed on the planet as a form of torture. So go back and read Isaiah 53, where uh, he goes silently as a lamb before his shearers, stricken for our grief, bruised for wounded and bruised for our transgressions and iniquities by his stripes were healed, all of these particular things. He was wounded and oppressed, not afflicted, opened not his mouth, uh, led as a sheep before his shearers is silent. Now, just go back and read this, friends. You're going to see the lamb slain for the sins of the world, uh, Jesus Christ, Messiah. Just a beautiful picture of Messiah being referred to in this uh, lamb imagery. And then, of course, let me just reference you back quickly to the Passover. Uh, the whole idea of the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb from the Old Testament, points forward to the Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the King, Jesus the Christ, who had become the once and for all Passover lamb. And then 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, the scripture tells us we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver gold from our aimless conduct or uh, traditions from our fathers, but we were redeemed, friends, listen, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And then John 1, verse 29, again, Jesus referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So my point is, when we read Revelation chapter 5, and we look at verses 4, 5, and 6, and uh, this one comes forth, worthy to take the scroll of Revelation chapter 5, worthy uh, to receive it, taking it out of the hand uh, of the right hand of the Father who sits on the throne. This one, a lamb as though it had been slain. This one, the uh, lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has prevailed, of course, prevailed over Satan, sin, death, and hell. He is worthy to loosen the scrolls. Clearly, friends, letting the Bible interpret the Bible, this lamb that John sees in Revelation 5 is none other than the resurrected, glorified Jesus the Christ. What a wonderful picture. Jesus alone worthy to take the scroll. So when the Lamb comes in, Revelation 5, beginning in verse 7, worship breaks out. Uh, they've already been worshiping God, right? But now the Lamb is on the scene and worship breaks out. That ought to tell us something about who the Lamb is, that He is worshipped in heaven in the presence of God, the Father who is seated upon the throne. Okay, let's pick it up in verse 7. Then He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Again, notice, 
The lamb is now being worshipped with bowing and with singing. Each one has a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nations and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And so notice that when the lamb enters in, worship breaks out. He comes in, he takes the scroll from the right hand of the Father, and when he does, the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb. They bow down before the Lamb and began to sing this wonderful song and to play their harps and to present the bowls of the prayers of the saints unto the Lord, and they sing a new song. The Bible says it's a new song, verse 9. It's the first time. Now, we have the lyrics here in Revelation chapter 5, but this will be sung when the scrolls are broken, it's, it's a song reserved for the future, okay? And so uh, here it is. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Look again at verse 4. If you back up to verse 4, who is worthy? You see that? Who is worthy? No one is worthy to open the scroll or to look at it or to read it. But not to worry. Here we find that Jesus is worthy of all creation, of all things in heaven, uh, in the earth, below the earth, of all creatures, all angels, all principalities, all authorities. Only the Lamb of God who was slain, only the one who redeemed us by his blood is worthy to take the scrolls. Only Jesus is worthy. I want you to notice that uh, the scripture here says that we, we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We know that. It's the blood of Christ which sets us free. And that in heaven there are people of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Man, I love that. Christ has exchanged his blood for the souls of men. Uh, he has laid his life down that we might be born again. And not only us, but people of all tribes, tongues, uh, and nations, all, all peoples across the planet, being made kings and priests because of the blood of Jesus. Now, I want to just point you in your notes to Hebrew chapter 9, verse 22 and 28, where the Bible says in that passage that almost all things, according to the law of God, are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Therefore, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus is necessary that our sins might be forgiven. In that same passage, the Bible says, so then Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart for sin for salvation. I also can't help but think of the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 24, where the church, of course, uh, right after the resurrection of the Lord, receives its commission. And uh, Jesus instructed the apostles to go into all nations, that is, all people groups, making disciples. And so when we get to heaven, friends, there'll be people literally from all nations, all people, all tribes, all tongues, all races all across the planet, and we will be kings and priests with God. That means we will co-rule with the Lord. Now, if you remember back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, and I'm picking up halfway through verse 5, the Bible says, "...to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests." To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm not exactly sure what it looks like to, for all of us to be kings and priests in heaven, but it seems that we are. It seems like at least the 24 elders are, and the implication is, is uh, beyond that. And so uh, the 24 elders with their thrones, perhaps kings, the rest of us perhaps priests, I don't know, but we have a uh, holy 
and a spiritual right in heaven to worship the Lamb and to minister unto the Lord for all of eternity. Now, when all of this takes place in John's Revelation, beginning in verse 11 and all the way through verse 14, we see the most amazing worship service ever. The worship of the Lamb extends to the multitude here. I just want to read this and let your imagination get carried away. The Bible says, Then I looked, that's John looking around. He's already heard the elders sing this new song. Now he looks around and he hears the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Okay, wow, what a worship service that breaks out here in the throne room of heaven. John sees the future. He sees something that is has yet to really take place. The Lamb has not yet received the scroll with its seven seals, but it's coming. That's coming. It's a part of the destiny of the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ here. And as the elders worship Jesus and bow down before him with their harps and with their new songs and with their bowls full of the prayers of the saints, John looks and sees many angels around the throne, living creatures and the elders, and the numbers of them were tremendous. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. It's a great multitude, friends. And I think this is one of the ways that the Bible is just telling us that we have an innumerable number of people in, in proximity to the throne, in proximity to the Lamb of God in heaven, who are worshiping. And look at their words. Worthy is the Lamb. There's that Lamb imagery again. Who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Just beautiful. Jesus, the Christ, crucified on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the world, paying the sin debt of all sinners across the world. Everyone who would repent and believe upon the Lord, who would trust in Him for their salvation. We come to the Lord, Romans says, by faith alone, apart from works or merits of any kind. We acknowledge our sin. We come by faith, trusting fully in the finished work of Christ. And here he is, the lamb who was slain, now being worshipped there in the throne room of God, in proximity to the throne that is shining forth of Sardis and Emerald and all these beautiful colors radiating forth from the person of the Father uh, God there. And Jesus receiving the worship in the throne room of heaven with the elders, the angels bowing down before him. And then verse 13 tells us that all of creation agrees. All of creation worships. I want you to look again. The Bible says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. That is so amazing to me that even creation itself is empowered with the ability to worship the Lord in this moment. And blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. There's the honor of the Father who is seated on the throne here and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I want you to notice these words in verse 13, forever and ever. All creation agrees, all creation worships, the elders worship, the living creatures worship, the angels worship, 
those creatures, human beings we know on the on the planet, those who are in, in the earth, under the earth, those who are in heaven, we all call out and agree, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. He has an eternal rule. Verse 14, the four living creatures said, Amen, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. So worship continues. Now, friends, again, I just want to point out to you as we begin to wrap up chapter 4 today, heaven is a worshipful place. What will we do in heaven? I don't know what our days are going to be like all day, every day. One of the significant activities of heaven is the worship of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus the Christ for all of eternity. And I think it's going to be great. I love to worship the Lord. I love to be filled mightily with the Spirit as we call out to the Lord. I love to praise Him because I love Him. I love to extol His name, to magnify Him. I know that you do too. If you're a true Christian, if you're walking with the Lord, then you love to worship God. It is the joy and privilege of the Lord, and in worship is where we meet with the presence of God. His presence is so often manifested in times of worship and singing and praises. Singing is so important to our worship. And when we get to heaven, one of the things that we will do a lot of is to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who bore the nail-scarred hands and the crown of thorns for us at Calvary. Do you know him? Do you know him? I pray that you know him. And if you don't, would you get to know him? Would you surrender to the Lord? Would you turn from your sins in repentance? And would you put your faith and hope and trust in the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus, the Root of Jesse, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth? Well, friends, that's chapter 5. Next time we get into the breaking of the seals, we'll begin in chapter 6 looking at the breaking of six different seals. And then, of course, uh, we'll continue chapter 7 and 8 talking about the seals and then moving into the trumpet judgments. Remember, there are there are three different cycles of judgments that are mentioned here, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl, or what sometimes are referred to as the vile judgments. There's actually a fourth set of judgments, the thunder judgments, which are not detailed here. The Lord told John not to write those down. We don't know everything, but we know a lot. Stick with us here at the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. We'll work through verse by verse these passages and see what the Lord has for us. Hey, listen, let me ask you to do me a favor before we adjourn. Who do you know in your life who would benefit from this kind of Bible teaching? Is there a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a family member, co-worker, maybe a neighbor, friend, or relative who would enjoy this kind of verse by verse Bible teaching? I wonder if you would share the podcast with them. And if you haven't already subscribed, I'd love for you to like and subscribe so that you'll get updates every time that we drop a new podcast episode, which we aim to do every Wednesday afternoon. Well, friends, I welcome your questions, comments, and cries of outrage, and I pray the Lord will bless you richly. Have a great day. See you next time here on the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast.